one of the things that we know works really well is to have somebody speak for you. And there's two different ways, basically. One is to find a sponsor. Maybe you already have a sponsor or a mentor, but ask them to mention your name when the situation arises, when your name comes up in a meeting and people start doubting your readiness, if you like, for the next round or for the next position. Make sure that this person knows you, has experience of your work, and then is able to say, hey, have you considered person X? I know she's done this, she's done that. Have you seen this? This is where her contribution shown or you know, came out in a very positive way. So that's one. Welcome to the Big Career Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti, and I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children. And that leads to gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations. We must change this. And I hope that many of you listening to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world a better place. Thank you for listening. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. You can find out all about our work on the website and the best way to be kept in touch with things is the newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. This podcast episode is particularly for employer change makers amongst our listeners who want to make the world of work a better place. Today's podcast guest is Klaarche Winkelberg. We talk about how organizations can ensure that not just those who shout loudest get promoted. We discuss high potential lists and whether women really do have lower confidence than men. Enjoy the conversation. A very warm welcome, Klaarche, to the podcast and thank you for joining us. Let's start with you introducing who you are, who's in your family and what you do for work. Good. Yes. So my name is Klaartje Vinkenburg. I'm based in Amsterdam. I'm 53. I will be 54 this year. So born in the great year 1969. Very important also when it comes to women's rights, etc. And my family consists of four people. I have two daughters. One is 19 and she's a second year student in the US. And my second daughter is 17 and she's currently graduating from secondary education. So she's still in the house, but with the emphasis on still because we're counting months now, not years anymore. And that's interesting. It puts a whole different dynamic. First of all, to have only one kid in the house still. And then when number one sometimes visits, the whole dynamic sort of switches. But it's really interesting. I think it's also very interesting life phase. This adolescence, especially coming out of two years of heavy lockdowns, how they deal with things and how they make decisions about their future and how to influence that as a parent, if you like, in a good way, you know, how to structure it, maybe. That's probably the things that you do. Anyway, and my husband is the same age. He will also be 54 and he's a partner in a consulting firm. So it's definitely two careers and two kids in this household. My own career has a bit of a roundabout. No, not really roundabout, but I don't know, meandering pattern, if you like, like a river. I started off studying psychology and then I did a PhD in business administration or rather in organizational behavior, focusing on leaders and gender, gender differences in leadership behavior or management behavior, as I still called it at the time. This was the early 90s. 
And I sort of, I finished my PhD in 97. And by that time, I was really finished with academia. I was not interested in an academic career. So I started off as a management consultant, first as a junior consultant for two years. I had a, you know, it was an interesting experience, but I also learned rather quickly that I'd rather take the deep dive than the shortcuts. So I'm more of a researcher or a scientist, let's say, in the way that I explore organizational issues. So after the two years, I decided to go back into academia. And <laughs> with the topic of this podcast in mind, I thought it would be a good environment to also have kids, which not really, academia is not very hospitable when it comes to combining work and care. But that was my thought at the time. I was in my early 30s then. And so I started as an assistant professor, then became an associate professor, had two daughters along the way. And by the early, yeah, about 10 years ago, I started sort of reconsidering. I hadn't made it to full professor, which in Dutch academia is sort of where you hit the glass ceiling. That is the important point to reach. And I was looking around me and I saw in the business school that very few people were actually internally promoted. And I also thought, you know, what is going to make me happy? Do I have to run around and get another academic institution to hire me? Or, you know, what inspires me? And I was much more inspired by doing what I call action research, which is basically consulting projects for organizations with a very strong research component. So you dive into the data to figure out what their issues are around diversity and careers mainly. And I thought I'm going to start my own business. So I started this in 2015, early 2015. It took a while and a, and a long sabbatical to figure it out. And I spent one day also still working in academia to help finish my PhD students that were still around at the time. So one day a week. And then since 2018, I've been only self-employed. And I'm starting this year. I'm a member of the National Advisory Committee on Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education. So that's quite a high profile commission membership, which is commissioned by our Secretary of Higher Education, Research, Science and Emancipation. And that's very important to mention that is all part of his portfolio. And I'm very honored to be part of that national committee. Congratulations. What Thank an you. achievement. Thank you. <laughs> and we probably yeah. should, should, did we say what country we were based in? I don't think we did. The Netherlands, Amsterdam. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. And I'm really honored to have you on this podcast. So in a nutshell, for the people who don't know, um, but essentially what you do is you go and help organizations who want to sort out problems that they have with career progression, equality, inclusion. Yeah. And you do that through a really deep, not the traditional consultancy of coming in and doing some sweet PowerPoint presentations, but <laughs> going into a really deep, yeah. really understanding the data, really yeah, understanding what's going on and then yeah. trying to solve the problem together. That's yeah. essentially what you do. That is essentially what I do, or at least what, what that's sort of my, how do you say it, my business proposition. I think if I look back at the projects that I've been involved in, it's sort of gradually become more policy level. So I speak to, let's say, associations of employers. So, for instance, in the UK setting, you are probably familiar with Advance HE and how they run the Athena Swan program and the Race Equality Charter. Well, those are the kinds of, let's say, umbrella organizations that I work for in the European context and also in different aspects of that in the Netherlands. So I've done research on alternatives to quota. 
you know, what kind of governing principles do we have to ensure a proper representation of various groups of people at board levels, both in the public and the private sector. But I've also run bias workshops for people who make decisions on who to promote to full professor or to partner in the professional service firms and really dive deep into their calibration sessions. So how, you know, just sit down with them, be there if possible as a participant observer and really listen to the language that they use. Why do some people get the benefit of the doubt and other people are always, you know, there's questions raised about their contribution or about their potential, which we will probably also talk about later. So that's more of a micro approach, but still similarly a deep dive into career processes and, and promotion processes. I think Generally speaking, when it comes to diversity and inclusion, a lot of organizations are managing recruitment and selection rather well. So they achieve their targets when it comes to recruiting for diversity, but then promoting for diversity is a whole other issue. And then, of course, it becomes also very much about culture and how do we do things around here? And are we inclusive towards people who do not fit the norm or maybe who have care responsibilities and don't have a partner at home who can handle that, etc. So those are the kinds of issues that I struggle with. And that's also where care responsibilities are very much a part of how diversity and inclusion plays out in organizational settings. Because a famous expression, not my own, but from one of our gurus in this area in the Netherlands, he says, careless workers don't exist anymore. Every worker, every employee, every boss even has care responsibilities. That's just uh, maybe a matter of demographics. Self-care, not unimportant. So those don't exist. It doesn't work. So mm, Absolutely. And there are so many things that we could talk about, but we yeah. did decide to focus on, let's start with one. We can then maybe get you back for lots of other podcasts. But we, yeah. we said we were going to look at self-promotion, which is what you have done quite a lot of work on. What did you first get you interested in that topic? Yeah, it's really interesting because as I said, I finished my PhD over 25 years ago and I was looking at leadership behavior and I found very few differences among men and women. Really, really very few. Let's say if you have 100 behaviors, maybe on two or three of those, you will find a significant difference overall between men and women, which means that probably what managers do or what leaders do is actually, let's say, you know, there's maybe more differences among women than there are between men and women. And among men, by the way. So it's just a broad range of behaviors. And very rarely do we find significant gender differences or sex differences, if you like. That may be the better term in a very binary split of the data. But we do find differences in career outcomes. We find men overrepresented at higher levels in organizations. We find salary differences. We find speed of promotion differences. We find differences in terms of the degree to which people feel included feel at home, feel they are able to bring their whole selves to work, etc. all those kinds of terminology. So there we do find gender differences. And I was wondering how that can be explained if the behaviors are actually so similar. And even at the assessment center level, so in the recruitment phase, there's very few differences. Also ambition, another thing, very, very few differences in ambition between men and women overall, career ambition, if you like. So what is that? Why do we see these differential, you know, why does it play out so differently across careers? And one of the things that occurred to me is to ask organizational decision makers, what does success look like? And then very, very often they start with stories around self-promotion, that people who are successful are very well able to raise their hand to say that they're interested, to say what they're good at, to tout their own horn, to use a very American term, 
to sell themselves or their ideas or their projects. And apparently, according to these decision makers, because that's, you know, perceptions are rule the world in that sense, men do a better job at self-promoting than women do. And then I'm a psychologist by training. So I was really interested around, let's say, the stereotypical expectation of self-promotion. And I think, generally speaking, we expect women, and that's, you know, it's a very normative expectation. So it's, you have to do this to be modest. You're not considered a nice girl if you tout your own horn or if you raise your hand quickly or if you shout, hey, hey, look at me. So that is a very gendered perception, which literally puts women in a difficult spot, a catch-22, if you like. They know they need to self-promote in order to get ahead in their career. At the same time, they also know, they have been taught that it's not okay for them to self-promote. So how do you do that? How do you deal as an individual woman with that catch-22? And also as a decision maker, and I find it very interesting always to talk to them, how do you recognize that duality? And how do you deal with that? If you see a woman self-promote, do you take it for face value or at face value? Or do you think, hmm, I don't know if I like her very much. And the same way around. If a man is very confident in the way he self-promotes, do you see that as normal, as expected? Or do you see that this man feels perhaps much more entitled and that it's okay for him to self-promote. Hmm. So tricky situations. That's, where the, that's where the interest comes from, I think. Yeah. Uh, very interesting. Very tricky also. But can you tell me, I know I promised to ask you about the research rather than your own opinion, but I'll ask you anyways, and then you can tell me, what is your recommendation then? for like, What should people do? Do you think, well, actually, women get such a backlash for self-promotion, therefore just leave it? Or would you say, well, actually, Never mind that people might like you less when you self-promote. Yeah. You have to do it anyway. Where do you lie? Yeah, there's a couple of different ways, and it's based on research. It's not, not so much personal experience, but I think there's a couple of different ways. I think one of the things that we know works really well is to have somebody speak for you. And there's two different ways, basically. One is to find a sponsor. Maybe you already have a sponsor or a mentor, but ask them to mention your name when the situation arises, when your name comes up in a meeting and people start doubting your readiness, if you like, for the next round or for the next position. Make sure that this person knows you, has experience of your work, and then is able to say, hey, have you considered person X? I know she's done this, she's done that. Have you seen this? This is where her contribution is shown or you know, came out in a very positive way. So that's one. The other way I think is called amplification. And that is to have other women in a meeting amplify what you just said. So basically say, you know, we have this experience with this client, as she just mentioned. I think that's very relevant for this case or for this project or for this, for this promotion. It's a strategy that the women in Barack Obama's White House administration, so the, the women who were working in the White House used and they decided on using and that's been very well shared on social media. And I think it's a very good example of how amplification as a strategy can do really well. There's other things that it's sometimes tough for individual women to try and influence, let's say, organizational practices and processes. But one of the relatively easy ways, maybe even a quick fix, is that the communication around, for instance, promotion states explicitly that self-nomination is okay. 
just put it somewhere on the website or in the guidelines. It's okay to self-nominate. We value self-nomination. Everybody is allowed to do that. If you consider yourself ready, put your name on the list. Or equally, you know, being nominated by somebody else is also fine. You know, we don't have one preferred route. And I think that really helps. It's similar to saying it's okay to negotiate for salary. Just saying, just giving the message that it's fine. That is very important. And then you can always, always fall back on it too and say, hey, we agreed that self-nomination was fine, right? So now that I'm doing it, don't hold it against me. Yeah. Mm. That's actually really powerful. In the UK, there's an award organization called We Are The City and they give out lots of awards to young women and men who do good stuff for diversity for and cities, inclusion. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And that's exactly what they do. They do say, we welcome self-nomination and it makes such a difference. Yeah, it the makes people putting a huge so It really, and I've seen amazing people put themselves forward who would never dare to do it without a little bit of that extra oomph. You're absolutely right. So you've got years of experience researching this. Is there one thing that surprised you the most when you looked at self-promotion? Yeah, I, one of the things that was, was a surprise to me and it was a really interesting piece of research is where they actually, they sort of stated as a given that women are uncomfortable with self-promotion. And they didn't take a very long time explaining why that's the case. They just take that as a given. But then from that starting point, they did experiments to explain this lack of comfort. Where does that come from? Does it come from lack of confidence? So do you feel, you know, literally, you know, you don't have a very high level of confidence, so that's why you don't self-promote? Or does it have to do with the cause of the discomfort? So can we manipulate discomfort, make it clear that it's about something else, maybe a noise or just a weird situation or somebody walking in and out of the room? So what is it about this discomfort? What is its immediate cause? And if we manipulate it, can we reduce the discomfort? And then the third explanation had to do with fear of backlash. So if I self-promote, how reasonable is it to expect that that is going to be used against me? And that third one was, in fact, the explanation. So that means that it's not this stereotypical lack of confidence. It's very much because you know that it will be used against you. And that may be something that runs very deep in a sense that I've also, you know, I haven't studied child psychology or development but I think it can have a lot to do with the way your parents raised you and whether you were not allowed as a girl to speak up or ask for your fair share, mm. just be ladylike and things like that, which I find terrible. But that it's, you know, it's just very common. And it's also something that's very common, especially in larger families where there's several girls and boys. And yeah, it may be different now for our kids. I don't know, because we have fewer children and it's easier to distribute attention and whatever. But anyway, it's a very strong thing. And I think if you sort of inherit that and bring that along at work or in your career, that's a tough one to deal with. But I'm just very happy. And that's why I was pleasantly surprised that it's not necessarily a lack of confidence. Mm, I so love that. And because so often I speak to employers who assume that people coming back from maternity leave have an automatic lack of confidence. And some people do because they've been out for a bit and maybe because they've been told they're going to not be so good anymore. But actually, a lot of people really don't. And this whole rhetoric, it always does annoy me. Yeah. Plus, also, I think it's very important, indeed, is rhetoric, is the fact that actually, if you have a baseline of confidence or self-esteem, if you like, men tend to sort of overestimate 
So women are actually very realistic about what they can do and what they want. And, you know, sometimes maybe negative, but that's because that's real because their baseline is very accurate. Whereas men tend to sort of overestimate. And if they then on top of that shout about it, you know, and maybe this sounds a bit stereotypical too, coming from my side, but that is, we really in life, but also in organizations, we conflate, is that the correct term? We conflate competence with confidence. So if somebody very confidently says, I can do this, and then they get in the car and they don't even have a driver's license, you know, (laughs) how can you assume that they can actually do this just because they very confidently said that they could? Yeah. I so agree. But the other side of this is that if everybody else or stereotypically, let's say quite a few men might feel comfortable self-promoting and then you are the only woman in that tech organization and you don't. Yeah. I think there's this that obviously has potential consequences. Yeah, absolutely. So that's why you need those sponsors and amplification and amplification obviously only works when you have a large enough critical mass of other women to back you up. And it also doesn't help that in some situations, there's a very stereotypical expectation, again, that women don't support each other. And if you're the only woman who's always supportive of other women, that is also viewed in a negative light. So this is very tricky. I don't believe in queen bee behavior as such. I do believe in queen bee being, again, a stereotype, which is mm. difficult to, to how do you say, to not fit that stereotype. Mm. Absolutely. With my social enterprise, I do have obviously a very clear agenda. So as part of our programs focused on career progression, we tell our parents, mainly mums, to self-promote and we go, you know, we get them to think what's the best way for them, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But one of the backlashes I get quite often, understandably, is that, well, actually, we don't think the world should be like this. We think it's wrong that people are getting promoted who are self-promoting. So yeah. that was not the right sense. But what is your response to this? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So, and that's why also, I mean, sometimes it's really difficult to come up with, let's say, universal solutions. So you have to really look for what is specific to a particular setting. And there are some settings, for instance, where there's first a round of selection on paper, where it's based on, I don't know, people's performance evaluation, or it's based on a written submission of an idea, uh, like, for instance, in research funding or in venture capital, those Initial ideas tend to arrive on paper. And then, you know, that selection round can be done in a very objective and even anonymous way where you just have criteria and you count and you weigh if there's a difference, you know, a weighing factor between those different criteria. But then the invitation to the second round, if you make it, the second round is typically an interview. And in the interview, you have to self-promote because that's the only way it works. You have to stand there, you have to dress up, you have to act, fit the part, uh, perform. And in this performance, which is very situated, it really depends on where you are and who's the audience and what is the light and what is the temperature and how, how comfortable do you feel on that particular day, you basically have to just create a story because it's not about your actual behavior. Interviews have very low predictive validity for the actual performance later on so it's all a big act on both sides so there's some settings where if that's the case my recommendation is just ditch the pitch forget about it completely do all of it on paper because it's impossible to take out of that situation the objective criteria and the much more subjective what does she look like how do i feel today wow so that's quite radical so you're saying to employers 
don't interview anymore just do yeah and that's of do. course in an you know an employee employer setting when it comes to job promotion or career advancement if you like that's difficult because they know you already and they have a certain set of expectations of your behavior and but in large organizations the people making the decision so the audience is not necessarily your direct supervisor. In some cases, that's not even allowed. The direct supervisor is not allowed to be there to participate. They can make your case in advance, but they cannot be there during the actual session. So it really depends, again, on the design of the interview setting. But if it's possible, like, for instance, when it comes to funding decisions, yeah, I would definitely recommend to just ditch it because it doesn't help. Mm. And some in some settings, women are actually do they do better in the second round, in the interview round, than they do in the initial round. So you first have to look at the data and then come up with fitting interventions. Hmm. And is there anything else that employers can do to make it less likely that those who shout the loudest get promoted and they actually get people who are the best, assuming that they're looking at people internally rather than people coming in from the outside? There's a couple of things. I think one thing that obviously works like it does work in in recruitment is to use a rubric and, you know, a fixed set of criteria and also scoring method for criteria to that is decided in advance, maybe on the basis of a fake CV or, a, you know, a preliminary calibration, if you like so that you can also hold each other to the agreements. You know, uh, if you said that you thought jeans were super important for this particular job and somebody comes in and wears jeans, then you shouldn't say, hey, I don't like them. You know, they they fit your criteria. And we can even agree to disagree. I look for different things than you, but, you know, we both look for something that's important. That's one thing. And the other thing that I think is really important is to really systematically apply the criteria to the different candidates in the same way. So not give somebody the benefit of the doubt because they scream very, you know, they're very loud about their, in terms of self-promotion, but really go back then to the CV or the record or whatever it is that you're looking at and say, why does this, this, why do we like this? You know, not just talk about the negative. You can talk about the negatives for hours, but also talk about the positive. Why do we like this person? Why do we think they fit the profile, the the for that whatever is needed for the next step, etc. So, mm-hmm. and a lot of that is done in very very informally, and often very suboptimally, I would say, in or mm-hmm. in larger organizations. So there's a lot of room for improvement. Yeah, exactly. When when uh, the two most important people in the interview panel have a quick chat while they go on a coffee and then come back to the workshop, where they look at the official yeah. again. Yeah, but even the, you know, the informal, I remember one time I was actually interviewing myself for a position in the UK and they had this very strict procedure where you were let in by secretary number one, then went into the committee and then out the other door via secretary number two. And I thought it was really weird at the time because I'd never seen that in the Netherlands. But now I recognize, because I've studied this so much more, that what happens between you and the secretary, if the secretary then talks to the chair of the meeting, they can influence things. They they can say, oh, I know she likes this, my favorite sports team, or I listen to her accent. She's been in the US, obviously, you know, whatever. So all this informal stuff, just, you know, that's such a big part of the formal decision, which it mm-hmm. shouldn't be. Because that's not what it is about. Unless we specify that we want somebody with an American accent, fine. But then at least that's obvious for everybody. It's part of the criteria. And so. Mm, yeah. And we all like people who are like us, which is part of the the challenge. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah, but we also all like men. <laughs> you know, <if laughs> women all like, also like, yeah, yeah, all of us like, Inappropriate no, no, no. Way, but but I mean, generally speaking, that's one of the things. You know, if the if the main explanation for outcomes of recruitment would be that people tend to sort of uh, you know birds of a feather flock together, that would mean that if you have a, a large enough critical mass of women on the selection committee, the outcomes for women would be better. But that's not how it works. We have this implicit preference for for white, fit, heterosexual men of a certain age. And that is just, that is, you know, that's my main thing when it comes to diversity and inclusion. We have to sort of stretch that norm, not to include a wider range of quality. We want quality, but we want quality and diversity and not just quality that fits the box so easily. Hello, this is a message for those of you who are listening to the podcast and have a baby or a child between the ages of zero and 11. Even today, only 9 in 100 FTSE 100 CEOs are women, and most sectors' leadership looks very similar. A big factor is that so many people's careers, especially mums, seem to be plateauing when they have children and when they want to enjoy those, those children as well. If you share my belief that caring responsibilities should not exclude you from becoming a senior director or even a CEO in a way that works for you, and if you want to be present with your children at the same time, then I would love to see your application to the Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme. You'll join a group of parents who feel the same as you, who are passionate about their career progression, but also passionate about their children. You'll participate in a structured nine-month programme designed to give you the courage and tools to progress your career and also make sure that you can set your boundaries and feel not guilty about the fact that you want to be with your child. You'll connect with an amazing group of men and women, uh, all with young kids, and of course with your personal senior leader mentor as part of the cross-sector fellowship program. Applications close on the 7th of March. Details are on the website leadersplus.org.uk forward slash cross-sector fellowship. Any questions, let me know. Thank you for letting me insert this brief message into the usual podcast rhythm. I always find that when people have listened to the podcast, they usually, you know, they're quite often applying for the right reasons and they're the type of people that we want to have as part of the fellowship. So, yeah, if you want to apply, then the time is now. And there's a hardship fund available for those of you who need financial support. And if you're not eligible, but you need support on how to convince your employer, my colleague Joe can help with that as well. So, yeah, any questions, just get in touch. Thank you for listening to this. I can see why your job is quite important to sort all that out one thing after another. Let me throw another challenge at you. And if any employers who are also parents are listening, this is not meant to have a go at you. But sorry, this is the worst introduction to question ever. But anyways, the thing that I get asked quite a lot is whether our fellowship program is for the people on the high potential lists. And I was never aware that there was something like a high potential list. But it seems like some, quite a few organizations in very varied sectors do have a list of people who they think is high potential and they want to support to progress their careers. What is your reflection on that in relation to self-promotion? Would you tell people ditch those lists or is there a way of making them more equal? I actually had a PhD student some years ago who I did. I did not have her. I supervised her, I should say. And she worked for a large, fast-moving consumer goods company. So she was what we call an external PhD student. And she was in charge of their talent 
management program. That was her daytime job. And then she did research about it in her own time or one day a week. And she really delved into the paradoxes that underlie these kind of high potential programs because it, that, that's what they are. They're very, you know, they're formalized talent programs. And one of the paradoxes that she explored, which I thought was a really interesting one, is the one between, let's say, exclusive and inclusive talent management. And what happens very often is that organizations design these programs to be exclusive on purpose because they're not for everybody. They're for the happy few that score high on both performance and potential. Potential being a very vague you know, that's a very fuzzy concept. How do you see potential? Is that, again, somebody who just fits the norm? Or does it, is it related to particular earlier performance? And then that means that is sort of, you know, that's sort of a, a predictor of future performance. Or what is it? So what is potential? And that is, you know, that's something you could do a whole PhD project on just what is potential. But she didn't. She really explored this paradox. And the other point being inclusive talent management, which means that it's not for everybody, but for make sure making sure that you're not just helping, quote unquote, one particular category. So that different social categories are equally resent, represented in your talent management program. And I think the most important outcome was just to show that paradox and to have a discussion among the decision makers, again, within a certain setting, for in, in your case, that would be your fe the fellowship. The people who decide on who gets this, are we making sure that we balance this inclusion-exclusion phenomenon? So it's not for everybody. It's for a particular group who meets our criteria. But at the same time, we make sure that we're not always giving it to somebody from the southeast of the UK or... I don't know, somebody who went to a particular kind of school or who works for a particular kind of company or so, you know, that in that sense, to make sure that you're being inclusive in who you give it to. So I think that that's just the most important thing, because paradoxes are not they're not like dilemmas. You can just, you know, it's not a knot that you can untie or cut or whatever. They just they are and they sit on the table if you if you talk about them and you make them explicit and you walk around and you and you, around them literally and you sort of look at the paradox from different angles and you talk about it that's just a very very important thing and to realize what that then means in terms of your processes and your uh, the way to make those more uh, you know more optimal functioning in a better way and more have a higher predictive validity and in a way what you're saying is that actually there is just no completely perfect solution but what we need to do is try to improve those systems and processes to make them as inclusive as possible. And on that note, I just want to give a shout out to anybody who is listening who is trying to do that, because I know so many amazing people who are trying within their organizations to drive change. And that's a really hard thing to do. It takes time. It's unfortunately not something that you can just do in 18 months and then go into a new job or a new role. This takes time and it's not easy. And it also... It's very important to measure, so to have some kind of, of baseline or zero measure and then see, then change things. Don't change everything at the same time, but change things and measure again and see if it's helped mm -hmm. in terms of both numbers and perceptions. Yeah, absolutely. So well done. I mean this in a really genuine, non-condescending way. I really have huge respect for everybody who is working for some yeah, change. Absolutely. I agree. It's a tough job. <laughs> 
which is why you chose this field, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm the I'm the external person. I get to leave again, right, at the end of the day. And that's uh, if you're responsible for this in a in a particular organization, and the tide is against you for whatever reason, that's not an easy job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. But there are organizations who are making progress, which is exactly what we need to do, to happen. So. You also mentioned when we chatted before that you were really interested in artificial intelligence. What are your reflections about performance management, equality and artificial intelligence? I don't know if I'm I'm very much interested in artificial intelligence. What I am interested in is in ways in which technology can help support decision making. Because I think we tend to believe as people in general that we make very good decisions but we don't our decision making is very flawed you know there's not not, it's it's for a reason that people win the nobel prize based on decision making theory is because there's so much noise and there's so much bias in our decision making and our whole brain is wired to make shortcuts because we cannot deal with all the alternatives and all of the possible information that exists out there to make fast decisions people decisions are really have to be slow decisions. And to slow that down, to slow your thinking down, is really hard to do. And computers, I think, or or technology, if you like, better term probably, can, technology can do a lot there. Even to the point, you know, very simple, like I said, making this rubric, make sure that it's structured by criterion and not by candidate so that you actually also have the discussion along the lines of the criterion or to have the first initial cv screening done by technology i think if in in a situation where you have a lot of cvs coming in that reduces a lot of pressure on decision makers to have the first sorting done by the computer unfortunately artificial intelligence is also biased because it's programmed by us and it's sort of it teaches itself to become biased right so Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or anything else that you wanted to mention before I'm going to ask you for your top takeaways? Well, you asked me initially when we first met if I wanted to talk about my own experiences. And I think especially because you have a lot of people listening with young children who are trying very hard on a day-to-day basis to combine work and family or work and care, if you like, or career and care, which is a nice CC alliteration, which I always like. There's one experience that I wanted to mention that's something that happened to me also in the UK context. It was quite a while ago. I think it was about 15 years ago, maybe 12. My kids were still very young. So they were two and four. And I was asked by a very large UK employer, and I won't say anything more because then you will know who it is, but they have quite a few women in junior positions, but very few women at this most senior level. And they asked me to come and talk about my own career and to tell them how I got there and to really give a personal story. And at that point in time, I was still an associate professor and still, I I think, even a new associate professor. So I was really uh, eager to come and talk about this and, and to be an example, let's say, for these young women. But then they said in the briefing that I couldn't say that I'm a parent. When was that again? 2008, I believe, or 2009. And I was like, what? Because it's very central to my life. Uh, It is, first of all, it's a very central part of my identity. It's also part of my tagline in my social media that I'm a proud parent of two daughters. It was also at that time, definitely very much a day-to-day thing. I had to really juggle my responsibilities at work and at home all the time. 
balance is bunk, doesn't exist. But, you know, just the constant, you're happier, I think, you have both, to have both. But Or I was, I should say, from, I was very happy that I had both work and, and home. But also at the same time, very, very tired and sometimes very frustrated because it just wasn't going the way I wanted to. And I said, why can't I talk about that? Because it's, you know, the fact that I'm actually quite proud of what I've achieved so far in my career at that time, almost 40 or turning 40, I was really proud, but I was also, you know, was also very willing to able to share with these young women how tiring it sometimes and frustrating it was. And they said, no, 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 we can't have that because we've, our experience is that if a more senior woman stands on the stage and tells the, the, the audience that she's also a parent, then the young women will think that she's superwoman and that's not me. And that's, I don't, they find that less recognizable. And, and then I said, I'm not coming. Because how can I only bring half of who I am? And I think that sort of that experience really brought home to me that I am both and more because I'm also a daughter and a sister and a friend and a daughter-in-law. And well, what, what other kinds of roles do you have? And I'm not willing to share only one slice of that pie if I'm asked to really talk about myself and my own experiences and my career. So it made me more open, and it all, but it also made me more aware of how I frame this story when I talk to younger women, that I don't expect, first of all, everybody to to be a parent or to want to become a parent, that that's, you know, personal. And I'm also not setting a norm that this is something that you have to do or that it's, I don't want to make it sound easy, but I also don't want to make it sound like something that is for everybody. So that was something that I learned. And it is also related to self-promotion, right? What part of yourself do you do you show? What part of yourself do you promote you know look at me i'm gray hair i don't wear a lot of makeup makeup i didn't at the time either i'm you know i'm not a superwoman where does that come from so i don't even i don't even want to i didn't just literally didn't want to go there so that was a personal experience that i wanted to to share and i have another anecdote but that's not my own it's actually my husband's (laughs) (laughs) please do share Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, this was, a, I talked to him yesterday that, and I mentioned that I was doing this and he was very struck by this bosses and babies notion. And he said that when he had, then when we had a baby, and I think she must have been very young still because she was still in the, in the car seat. And in the Netherlands, babies go to daycare at about 10 weeks or so, because that's when moms typically have and end their maternity leave, 16 weeks. So they're very young when they go to daycare for the first time. And I think a lot of parents in the Netherlands struggle with that, that you actually give a 10-week-old baby into daycare. And so he ran out of a meeting, being in a professional service firm. He ran out of a meeting because he had to go pick her up. But he didn't say that. He mentioned that he was going to meet another a client. Very important, of course. So he ran downstairs into the basement to go pick her up, to get to the garage, to get his car. And he was juggling with the car seat. So he was putting the car seat in so that he could go pick her up. And then somebody knocked on his shoulder. And this was a senior partner. And he, at the time, wasn't partner yet. So this was a senior partner. And he said, you know, he really felt caught, right? He got really red cheeks. So you're not going to see a client. You're going to get your baby. And he said, yes, and he felt guilty. And the senior partner said, next time, please mention that in the meeting, because I want you to give an example. I want you to show to everybody in the meeting that a person at your level, he was at the time, I think, engagement manager or whatever they call it, right before becoming partner. Show people in the meeting, everybody that's there, that you're also an engaged father. 
And, you know, it may have been different if the situation had been a woman picking up her kid, possibly because they maybe have expected that more at that time in that particular setting. But the fact that he was doing it was something that he had to also show, which I thought was a very good piece of advice. I don't know if this particular senior partner ever picked up his own children at the time, but, you know, at this time in my my partner's career, that was or my husband's career, that was sort of a turning point that he started to becoming more... He never worked part-time. That didn't happen, but he did do his share of picking up and uh, the evening shift. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for sharing those two anecdotes of you both being role models. In a way. And even no role model is ever perfect, but you are going to spread change by just doing things differently. Yeah, and also being called upon it in a in a public setting. You know, obviously it was good that the partner didn't call him out in the meeting, but mentioned it in the garage. But still for the next time, Please, you know, mention it. Yeah. So many people ask me whether or not to show the pictures. Yeah. The pictures of the children on their desk. Yeah. And the answer is always yes. Yes, absolutely. Now, I fully agree. That is one thing, you know, this catch 22 that we talked about for women. uh, It's a good thing to also show that you have care responsibilities. But please let men also share the pictures. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Definitely. I would like to come to the end and we always ask our guests for one or two or three practical things so yeah. can you think of any practical thing that might only take five minutes or so this week that an employer or an individual could do to take to overcome the bias yeah it's a that's a good question and obviously i earn a lot of money by giving dedicated advice not to so much to individual people but to employers but a few things, and I think I'm maybe it may be a bit of a repetition because I, I've mentioned some of it before. I think don't underestimate the power of having somebody speak for you. So if you're afraid to self-promote, maybe rightly because you fear backlash, because you know from experience in your organizational setting that it works that way, you know, have somebody else promote you. I think that's so whether it's a sponsor or a mentor who can speak for you or whether it's other women who can amplify what you've just said. I think that's just a very good piece of advice. And also, I mean, for employers, I think I've I've already mentioned showing that it's okay to self-nominate and not as an excuse. You know, you can also self-nominate. No, self-nomination is an equally valid and equally valued strategy. I think that's very important to communicate and also just basically being transparent about how promotions work in your particular setting, because in a very, in very many settings, that's very opaque. So people don't know. And senior people may think that everybody knows, but they don't know. They, not even when something is maybe posted on the Internet, it may be not be very obvious how you would actually get there and how you even mention that you might be interested So that's one. And then another piece of advice for employers is to sort of stretch this norm. How can we make sure that what we think is successful, whether it's a person or a career, this notion of what success looks like, make that more inclusive and talk about that and also talk about what you do like and what you do look for instead of just saying this doesn't work or this doesn't, she doesn't show it yet. Well, what does she have to show? I think it's just very important to become very explicit about uh, what it is that you expect also among decision makers. And can you tell us where people can go to find out more about you and your work? 
that's one of those things when you're self-employed, you know, you should always work on your website, which I haven't done because I find that clients know where to find me. Also, obviously, UK-based clients because I've had quite a few of those. I think LinkedIn is probably the best place because it has my contact details, but it can also give you a nice overview of my recent projects. And there's also a link to my publication profile. So if people want to read some of my work, that's there. And a lot of those are open access. So that's nice. I find it important that it's not behind the paywall. So that's probably, so LinkedIn is a good way. And then I will also make sure that you have a few links to things that I've done that I've written, especially on self-promotion, specifically in the science context. The paper is called Selling Science. And then there's another one on, let's say, more general diversity interventions for careers or around careers issues. So those two I would like to put uh, in the show notes. That would be nice. Oh, and there may be another one on, it's about career and care and sustainability in the combination. So something like that. I'll put three. I look forward to reading those. Thank you for being on the podcast. It was wonderful to have a conversation with you. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed the podcast and you think a non-judgmental community of support would be really helpful to you, then I would love to hear from you as an application to the Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme. As you know properly, this is designed to help you to identify where you want your career to head and will give you lots of support and encouragement along the way. And then most importantly, to help you make it possible to get there practically whilst being present with your family in whatever way you want that to be. Previous fellows have said it made them take really courageous steps that they never thought possible and also that they made lifelong friends and connections. In our last cohort, more than half have got promoted or got additional senior responsibility by the end of the program. And that's particularly impressive because most of them work part-time or flexibly. Plus, I think they've all got quite mavericky in a good way. They're all involved in some shape or form of driving wider change for working parents, be that mentoring other parents, be that changing policy in their organizations, whatever fits at that moment in their lives. It only takes about half a day a week Uh, Sorry, (laughs) that would be a lot. Half a day a month. So I think it's more than doable. It's been designed with parents in mind. You can find all the details on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash cross-sector fellowship. The application deadline for this upcoming cross-sector cohort is 7th of March. And also, if you want us to talk to your employer, to your organization about offering this to their employees, i.e. you, then let me know and my colleague Joe or I can have a conversation with them my email is verena at leadersplus.org.uk. On a completely unrelated note, I also feel passionate about gender equality in podcasting. And I've recently learned that the top, you know, 100 podcasts, etc. is extremely male dominated. I think 90% male dominated or something like that, depending on what's that you look at. And I thought that needs to change urgently. So if you want to help, and push forward female-led podcasts and first of all listen and share female-led podcasts and if you think this podcast is is good and useful then also do share that leave reviews and do all those things that increases the algorithms prominent so yeah for example a whatsapp or signal message to some friends with a link to the podcast is always very welcome and very helpful and hopefully it will help us smash this particular glass ceiling up in the podcast world. See you next week and thank you so much for your support.